You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Today's scripture reading comes from Lamentations 3, 19 through 24. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steady morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the word of the Lord. Lakita, thank you for reading our scripture this morning. I don't know if you picked it up through the theme of uh, the songs we're singing as part of our worship, but today we're talking about God's faithfulness. We are uh, really continuing a series that we started last week with Joe on Easter. We're talking about our future hope and what that might look like. And when you hope in something, you think about what's going to happen in the future And you try to predict in your mind based on things you've seen in the past. And I just want to say today, if you don't think of here of anything else I say the rest of this morning, our future is indeed bright because of God's great faithfulness and his love and his mercy he has for each one of us. Let's pray. Father, as we continue in worship and opening up your word I ask that you would guide our hearts and our minds. Many of us come this morning, whether online or here in person, and we're seeking some peace. We're seeking encouragement. We're seeking inspiration from you. We're seeking a way of a new life in a better way. Father, we're concerned about things around us. We're concerned about things going on in our families, the victories and the struggles. I ask this morning that that you would show us a glimpse of your faithfulness and your love you have for us and help us to understand that difficult times are here. Difficult times will come. But your love never fails. Your love never ceases. Father, take the distractions in our life right now. Help us to focus in on your word. Help us to focus on the Holy Spirit. In this name I pray, amen. I am so thankful to be here. I'm rich. I'm, I'm not one of the pastors, but I've been privileged enough to be in a rotation while Will, our pastor, as many of you know, is, is on sabbatical. And I just want to thank the, the pastoral team here, Joe and Brian, as they're working with work of our people. Come alongside them. It's been an honor and a privilege. And, and the work of our putting our services together is not unnoticed, Brian. Thank you for listening to the Holy Spirit as he's worked in my heart these, these past weeks on this text and so revealed in how we come together and worship is indeed awesome. Um, one thing I enjoy about when Brian preaches, he always starts off with a really interesting story, something about sharks and his wife and Loki, his dog, eating food. I don't have any of that this morning, but I do have a really true, interesting story And some of you may have heard this before. If you have, just please indulge me on this. Some of you have not heard this story. Hopefully, it'll touch you. In 1828, there's a young guy. His last name was Spafford. He was born in New York City. He became a successful lawyer, moved his practice to to Chicago, 
in the mid-1800s and became very, very successful. But he was a Christian. He was a deep Christian man. And he became very good friends with an unknown evangelist at the time named Dwight L. Moody, who became world famous, and there's still a Moody Bible Institute in Chicago training men and women for the furtherance of the gospel. For Mr. Spafford, in his business practice, he, he was smart enough to buy a lot of land. He was kind of like the, one of your first like flipper guys. He would find old places and he would flip them around and he would turn them. He bought a lot of the lakefront property there in, in Chicago. In 1871, though, there was a great Chicago fire and it destroyed all of his earnings and all his wealth. To work through that, he, he dug into his Christian passions and he decided that it'd be good to go to Europe with Dwight Moody and a couple others and do them in the 1950s and 60s. And he'd take his family with him. Well, there weren't airlines in those days, 1870s, so he put his family on a ship. He was supposed to go with them, but his business delayed him, so he was going to take a later voyage. Halfway across the Atlantic, that ship that his his wife and his four daughters were on, collided with another ship in November of 1873. Think about what the water is like in the northern Atlantic in November. It's cold. The ship sank in 12 minutes. When the rescue ship arrived in England, of course, there's no radios, long-range radios in that day, no internet, no satellites. His wife arrives safely. She sends a telegram with these words. Saved, alone. Horatio Spafford lost his four daughters. He quickly got on the ship, and it's reported that on the ship, while he was going across the Atlantic, he wrote and penned a poem that we now sing, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Every time I hear this story, I think about this guy who lost everything, devastated financially, was able to rebuild back, puts his family on what he thought was trusted, and his four little girls perish. I don't know about you, but I'd probably be a little bit angry. I'd probably shake my fist at God for a little while. But not Horatio. As he's crossing the water, the song, or the song, and it starts off, when peace like a river attendeth my way, with sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Horatio learned it is well with his soul because his God is faithful and loves him. Our future hope, we're going to, through this next couple of weeks, we're going to explore the, the peace and the presence of God's ultimate victory over sin and death. We're not going to be able to take the time this morning to describe everything about hope because he we're going to talk about our future hope, and I'm not going to get to everything because we've got a lot to explore on that layer. But what I'm going to talk about today is our hope here and now with a, with a vision of the future. The book of Lamentations, there's been some, um, a little bit of disagreement among scholars. Some, most of them say Jeremiah wrote this because it's very, it's very similar to the book of Jeremiah and some of the language. Others disagree. Um, I'll let the PhD candidates figure that out later. But for the, for the purpose of our sermon today, we're just going to call it Jeremiah. Jeremiah supposedly wrote Lamentations. 
And he wrote it after he spent his life preaching to the people of Jerusalem and Judea about returning to the Lord, turn from your sin, wicked ways. He was persecuted, but he spent his life speaking for God. And here in Lamentations, he's, he's, he's crying out to God, he's wailing to God, and he's kind of having a, I told you so moment. He's not saying those words, but I told you so. I told you it was going to come. Well, we jumped right in the middle of a story, but I want to back it up a little bit and give you the context because I think it's important for us to have the context of where Jeremiah is coming from so we understand his brokenness here and how we can relate it to ourselves as we go on in the next weeks to look at our future hope. We know from where we came. So that hope in the future is much more significant than just a couple of verses here. So I just want to walk through a little bit of the Old Testament, but first I want you to, I want you to think about the history of Israel, they're very close to God. You just read the Old Testament. They're very close to him and they're very far away. They're very close to him and they're very far away. So they go through this pattern of sin and restoration and, and sin and restoration. And I want you to think about that. That's, that's who we are. We sang about it. We grow close to God and things are good and then we drift away. And then we grow close to God and we drift away. For our problem is, just like we're gonna see here in Israel, when things are good, when life is, is at peace and we've got success and there's fatness, there's abundance and blessings, it's easy for us to forget the one who brought us there. And I think it's especially hard for us Americans because we have this rugged individualism. We have this freedom and this liberty and we can do it, we can build this up. It's a can-do attitude, but sometimes that can corrupt our rebuild and then it depends upon us. And then when it doesn't go that well, it must be somebody else's pro fault or problem. It can't be me because I, I'm good, right? That's the way I think. That's personally. But also corporately as a, as a country, you see the nation of Israel, not just individuals, but they also follow after the culture that's surrounding them. They're influenced by the pagan worship and, in, and wealth and money and attractions to the other sex and all kinds of stuff, not unlike what we deal with today. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke about that we're to be the salt and the light and we're to influence culture instead of culture influencing us. We should know culture, yes. We should be very well read and understand it, but also compare it against the biblical truth and point out where it's not quite right. If we don't do that, we're going to drift just like they did. So corporately, our social pride and the ideas that are apart from God are going to weaken the focus on God's vision. That's just one of our problems. The second problem is when we do struggle, when calamity does hit your life, when difficult times, and, not, and this past year has been difficult for so many of you. There's been loss, failures. There's been loss of loved ones. There's been loss of businesses. There's been failures. There's been health failures. There's been societal failures. It's all too natural for us, though. This is where our problem comes in. When these things happen, it's sometimes in our wallowing, in our pain, in our crying, we shake our fists and say, where is God in this? If God is so good, why do bad things happen? The preacher of Ecclesiastes, he talks about this, and he says, you know what? Why, why, does the, why does it appear that the, the evil ones or the bad guy wins? But what he reminds us is there's sin in the world and sometimes it gets on us. Sometimes it's our sin that we do that causes 
follow-on problems. Sometimes it's the sin of others that hurt us. Because no private sin is goes unnoticed. It will impact others. Do is kind of kind of like if you're Star Wars fans out there, you're gonna like this. I have two Star Wars references in this in this sermon. I remember I saw the original Star Wars in the movie theaters in 1976. And I remember reading it, and I was a young kid, and it pops up, you know, how the trailer comes, the words come up, dum da dum, you know. And it says episode four. And I remember seeing that as a little kid thinking, episode four? Where's one, two, and three? Why are we jumping in the middle of this story? Well, that's what we're doing here with Jeremiah. So we're going to go to the prequel, get one, two, and three. Because what we're missing here is 1,400 years, 1,400 years of Jewish history. I'm not going to go through it in real time, but I'm going to do a quick survey. 2000 BC, God comes onto the scene. He's been there before, but... Specifically, he speaks to one guy named Abram. and says, Abram, won't you come out of your land? I want you to go to a land that I'm going to call you into. I'm going to give you this land, and you're going to take this land, and you're going to prosper, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abram goes, okay, sounds good to me. And they get there, there for a little while. Genesis 15, he says, Abraham, or Abram, I know you're old, but I'm going to make you a huge family. And if you remember this, Abram goes, I'm old. I don't have any kids. And he takes him outside at night and he says, Abram, look up to the stars. As many stars as you see, that's going to be the size of your family. Abram has a little bit of doubt for a little bit, but then he believes him. That's the Abrahamic covenant. He says, your offspring are going to be as... And here's how I'm going to prove it's going to happen, Abram. Because Abram's like, well, I don't know about this. He says, okay, bring me a heifer, a cow. Bring me a goat and bring me a ram. When I first read this, I was like, this is really weird. But if you look at Genesis 15, it gets more weird. Because what God does is he, he cuts those in half. And for those innocent ears in the, in the room, I apologize, but he dissects them and lays them out. God does this for Abram. And this was a picture of how they would, they would cut a covenant in the Old Testament. And they would walk, two people would say, we're going to do this. We're going to walk through this nastiness. And if either one of us break it, then this is what's going to happen to us. They're, they're, they're pretty serious. This is more than just shaking hands and crossing your fingers. This is serious stuff. God does this. He lays it out. And then he says, you know what, Abraham? You're not going to walk through this with me. I'm going to be the one to keep the covenant. He calls a sleep to follow Abraham, and God passes through it, signifying that this covenant that he's promising Abraham to preserve the nations through Abraham is totally 100% focused and dependent upon God's faithfulness to his word. That's just the 15th chapter of Genesis. And then we have the rest of all this. And this is how it happens. Chapter 17. He says, he says Abram, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. So I'm going to change your name to Abraham. He said, I'll be your God. You will be my people. Now let's fast forward a little bit. Because we could go to Genesis 18 and 19 and 20 and my wife would come up here and kill me. 120 years, late, 120 years later, Joseph, or Joseph, the technicolored uh, coat, all the brothers who didn't like him, threw him into a pit, sold him off to slavery, goes off to Egypt. Weird story, bad things. You're like, how could your brothers possibly do this to you? This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's cave becomes the number two guy. Joseph ends up in, Israel, in uh, Egypt, sold as a slave, becomes the number two guy in the nation. He becomes the prime minister. It's pretty pretty cool for God to take a bad situation and make it turn around for good. Maybe there's a verse in the New Testament that talks about that. Um, 
A famine occurs in the land. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, and his kids go to Israel, and they're saved through the preservation of the food that Joseph, coming out of a bad situation, was to do for them. They spend 400 years in Egypt. They grow mightily. They're big. Well, let's enslave them. That's a great idea. We'll keep them down. So then Moses comes on the scene 400 years later. Let my people go. So Pharaoh lets them go. Then they spend a couple years wandering in the desert. They go to the land that God had promised Abraham. They take Israel with uh, Jacob. I'm sorry, Joshua. Another J. Then about 400 years later, after being in the land, they're kind of getting kind of comfortable. They say, you know what? We want a king. We want to be like other nations. We like God being up there, but we want somebody right here. So God says, okay, you get what you get. So he gives them Saul. Saul becomes king in 10, 1050 BC. Old Testament scholars, how am I doing so far? Okay, we're trying to keep going here. Okay, so Saul. Saul becomes king. Saul doesn't quite do everything right. God says, you're not going to be the king anymore. I'm going to get this little guy named David. King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says this to David. About David. He says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son when he discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But with steadfast love will not depart from him. My steadfast love will not depart from him. And I will establish his throne forever. So God says, I'm going to establish your throne forever, David. Your lineage will be the king forever. They took that very literally. Now we know who the king of kings and the Lord of lords is because he comes from the tribe of Judah from David. But he says, when he commits iniquity, I obviously, when you, man, what's he talking about? Well, obviously, when you, if you remember back when you were a kid and you did bad things, you got punished. That's what he's talking about. Let's back it up for a second. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28, at the very end of the Torah, the first five books, there's this really interesting scene, and it's talking about what, how you will choose to follow God. It's kind of where President Bush said, if they're not for us, they're against us. He took that out of Scripture. Um, so what he does here, Moses is preaching to the people, and he says, here's what we're going to do. When you get into the land of Israel, this is before they go in, when you get there, you're going to have this big worship service. And you're going to take the 12 tribes, and you're going to split them into two, and you're going to put six of them on one mountain called Mount Gerizim, and six of them on another mountain called Mount Abel. They're about two miles apart. And you're going to worship, and you're going to read through the Old Testament, through the Torah, and you're going to read all the blessings of God on this mountain, and you're going to shout them. And you're going to read all the curses on the mountain, on this mountain, signifying there's a valley in between and you've got to choose which way you're going to go today. Are you going to serve God for the blessings or are you going to serve God, not serve God rather, and suffer the curses? That's what God is saying when he says, when, I, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. It's kind of like this. And I want to give a shout out to Joe Cooper for letting me borrow his, his umbrella. God says... When you choose the blessings, 
You're under my umbrella of protection. When you choose the curses, you're not under my umbrella of protection. So guess what? The rains are going to come. The hail's going to get you because there's evil in the world. But if you're under my umbrella, I can protect you. This is where God says to stay. And there, there are barriers to help us try to stay under, but there's also some guardrails. And sometimes we like to drive the car right off the guardrails and over it out into here, don't we? Because this seems to be fun. God says it's not. It's short. This is, this is pretty small. And I don't know if any of you have used a, a regular umbrella like this size. When you go out into the rain, you get protected from the rain, right? What happens when that car drives by? Boom. Splashes the water, gets on you. Or if you're walking, it's going to get on your paint. You're going to get some rain on you. So just because you're under the umbrella of God doesn't mean the sin of the world is not going to splash you a little bit. We're going to take some collateral damage, but you're still under the umbrella of God. Choose this day where you will be. Ephesians 2 talks about, we read part of it this morning, it says we were alienated from God. We were without hope. We didn't have the umbrella. But now we have the hope in Christ Jesus who was crucified for us. We have the umbrella. All right. Book of Kings. So we've got King David. They go for a couple hundred years, doing pretty well. Solomon becomes king in 970 B.C., Solomon was the, Ecclesiastes teaches, was the smartest guy, the richest guy, the most powerful guy in the world. And he followed God earnestly. Unfortunately, because of his wealth and his influence, he started, well, let's put it this way. He liked the ladies. He liked ladies of all backgrounds. And scriptures say they turned his heart away from God. And God says, okay, Solomon, I'm going to preserve the lineage of David. I'm going to keep my promises because I'm faithful, but I'm going to strip the kingdom away from you and your sons. First Kings 11, the kingdom is torn in two and one tribe is preserved, the tribe of Judah. That's why when you read Kings and Chronicles, you see, the, you see Israel and Judah. Now there's two kingdoms. 250 years later, after the split, and sometimes they're fighting and sometimes they're friends and sometimes they're fighting and sometimes they're friends, the nation of Assyria comes in and they take away the Israel, the, the, the ten tribes. They come into the land, they enslave them, spread them out everywhere, and they take their houses. So now all is left is Judah, the tribe of Judah, and really Jerusalem. And that's where you have Jeremiah preaching, going, hey, watch out. Look what happened to your neighbors. Let's not do that. And do they listen? It's around them. They like the philosophies and the ideas. And I know God says this, but does it really mean that? So as you read through Kings and, and Chronicles, you say, you'll read about this king and then his son was born and came king and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. A good little study for you if you want to, just go through and write down all the kings and just write down, did evil, did well. Did evil, did well. And you will see they start doing well and then they all start to do evil because that's just the nature of sin. We're always going to degrade when we get away from God. All right, so they watch, Judah watches the northern tribes get taken and a lot of them slaughtered. So there comes this king named Josiah about 60 years later. Josiah becomes king at the age of eight when his father is murdered. 
So imagine you're king and you're eight. Imagine one of those little kids over there is our king. <laughs> That's what's going on with Josiah. He's in there about eight years and when he turns 16 years old, he decides to have a rehab of the temple. The temple that Solomon built with all the gold and everything. He says, let's rehab, let's put new carpet in, let's make it nice. So they're doing that and one of the workers finds a book. He's like, hey man, there's this book in here. I think you ought to look at it. He takes it to the priest. He goes to Josiah the king and they sit down and read it and as they read it they just tear their clothes and they lament and they're weeping because they have gone so far away from God and his rule. What they found was the Torah. So imagine all these years, hundreds of years, they're worshiping in their temple but they're not even reading God's word. How many of us have not read God's word this week? And how far do you feel from God right now after just a couple of days? Imagine going, a nation going hundreds of years not reading his his book. Jeremiah was, but they weren't listening to him. So they have 30 years of reform. Josiah turns the nation around. Things are going well, but unfortunately Josiah's caught in the political crossroads because he has Egypt down here, who's kind of the big big head, head honcho in the area. They got all the power. And then you got this little kingdom growing up here called Babylon. He's stuck in the middle. They have a war. Unfortunately, Josiah is killed. His son takes over. And it's unfortunately, in 2 Kings, it says his son did evil in the sight of the Lord. And things go downhill very, very quickly. 587, Nebuchadnezzar finally comes in after, after multiple puppet kings revolt against him and play mommy daddy with, with Egypt. And he destroys the city of David, Jerusalem. Lamentations is all about what happens during those days. And it's pretty gruesome when you read Lamentations. It's pretty disgusting. But most importantly, they not only destroy the city and the city walls and they kill all the people, but they destroy God's temple and they carry away all the gold and the silver and the bronze that we read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. All those beautiful things that are dedicated to the Lord they, tear, they take away and they burn the temple and destroy it. So I'm just going to read you a couple of verses out of Lamentations because up to the verse that we're at today, there are about 150 lines of Jeremiah describing his pain and agony of seeing the destruction. Verse 1, chapter 1 says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become she who was great among the nations she who was prince was a princess among the provinces has become a slave judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress jerusalem sinned grievously therefore she has become filthy all who honor her despise her for they have have seen her nakedness she groans she turns her face away Later in the chapter, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. Chapter 2, and I'm just going to pick up a couple of these. The laws of her palace. So there's, there's, that's the army going in. In the house of the Lord as on the day of a festival. So there's, there's, that's the army going in, destroying the place where the presence of God was. My eyes are spent with weeping. 
My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because of the infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry for their, num- for their mothers. Chapter three, I am a man who has been afflicted under the rod of his wrath. Verse eight, though I cry and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. Jeremiah feels very far away from God. How could this possibly happen? He's lamenting, which is a way of, of crying out to God and wailing, but with trust. It's very raw. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. And that brings us to our verses today. Just want to give you a snapshot of where the history was, the promises of God. God says you choose curses or you choose blessings. David, when you fall into iniquity, I'm going to let people hurt you because you brought it upon yourself. You stepped out from the umbrella. And that's exactly what's happened here in Jeremiah is telling us about it. And then he gets to remember, verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, uh, fruit, a better tree, that's all they had to eat. My soul continually remembers it. My, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He is emotionally and spiritually broken. And I think maybe that and maybe some of you are today. Some of you are emotionally and spiritually broken. And I think to, it's good to understand that, that it's okay to be the, with, that, with that with God, but we can't shake our fists and say, why God, why God? We've got to remember that he is faithful. But look what happens in verse 21. If you remember as we read it, there's a shift. And Jeremiah says, but this I call to mind. So Jeremiah, in his brokenness and his emotional anguish, he goes back to what he knows. He remembers the promises of God. I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. And he starts to talk about victory. Verse 22, but this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah is, I wouldn't say he's acting like Horatio Spofford. It's the other way around. Horatio Spofford, the loss of his daughters, is saying, in the midst of my misery, my anguish, I'm still going to talk about how well it is with my soul. He repeats it again. So he repeats, there is hope. I have hope in him because the Lord is my portion because this bitterness and this wormwood and this gall, that's not for my future. That's just here temporarily now. I'm going to look to the hope we look to the faithfulness, the amen, the truly of what it is. So how does that help us today? It helps Jeremiah here. Um, what I want to say is our problems that we deal with our pride and think that we can do it all and our corporate idea that we can make our own future. Again, we've got to remember from where that blessings came from. It was God who went before us, has a plan to redeem us, but sometimes life is hard. 
I think it's understand. I think it's helpful to understand what biblical hope is versus cultural hope because we had we use this word hope, but it's, in the English it's kind of like love. There's different kinds of love. I love my dog. I love my wife, and I love chocolate. It's not the same. There's hope, and then there's biblical hope. Cultural hope. What we think of is uh, kind of human hope. It's the prospect. It's potential. It's what might happen. It's a desire. It's a wish. A want. It's when we say, I hope Santa Claus brings me a new bicycle. I hope I get my really cool homeroom teacher that I want and my friend Bobby's in there with me. I hope. Is it going to happen? Don't know. Or how about this? I hope I get that new job or that raise next year. I hope I don't get COVID-19. I hope I get a vaccination soon. Maybe the lines at Costco aren't going to be that long this afternoon when I go, to, when I go after church today. I'll see you there. I hope my boss doesn't notice I'm late again. Or for the other quote, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. If Obi-Wan's your only hope, why are there like 11 movies now? It should have been one. For this hope, it's fickle. This human hope, it's fickle. It's erratic. It's unreliable. But biblical hope, what Jeremiah is talking about here, and what we're going to worship over the next couple of weeks and ponder on and think is it's confident, expired promise to Noah. I'm going to hang my bow in the air, my offensive weapon. I will, I will destroy you no more. This is my promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a, a father of many nations. And he seals it with him and reaffirms it with David. And even though he punishes Solomon, he punishes the nation, he says, I'm going to preserve Judah for a very specific reason. Because God is unchanging. Malachi says, quoting God, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Kind of sounds like Judah. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Kind of like us. The writer of Hebrews says, God is unchanging. He says it this way, that Jesus Christ is the same when? Yesterday, today, and forevermore. So if, if Jesus Christ is the same forevermore, always was, always will be, I think that's a pretty good source for us to lay all of our confidence and faith on. It's a trustful expectation. Psalm 119 wraps it up this way. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction that your promises give me life. I'm so appreciative of this church and what we do here. We've been walking through a spiritual disciplines class led by, by Chris Morrison. Thank you. I appreciate that. I want to publicly thank you for that because you encouraged us to read through the Psalms slowly. I've read through the Psalms a lot, read through them fast. But in this reading through the Psalms slowly, I've picked up the themes of this lament, this idea of where is God, where is God? At the same time, the psalmist says, God, you are my rock. You are my shield. You are my fortress. You are a very present help in this time. Even though I'm suffering, God, you're my rock. I'm so thankful for that. First Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A living hope. It's not just, I hope I get a bicycle next year. 
No, this is a guarantee that's not only a guarantee for the future, it is living, it's renewing every day, as Jeremiah says. Right. Remember the two mountains, the mountains of curses and the mountains of blessings? Back in Deuteronomy, right after that, this is recorded. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So there's some of the punishing with the rod. And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Sounds kind of like love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your heart, with all your mind. We talked about love and we like to talk about 1 Corinthians 13 and talks about love is, love is, love is. But there's three attributes in there that mark a Christian. Faith, our hope, and our love. And it does say that love is the greatest of all these. But let's not forget about our faith and our hope, our guaranteed expectation. Now, one thing we did is we changed the verse for this week. We backed it up a little bit, but I want to read the, the part that we were going to talk about because it's a great illustration. After, after Jeremiah says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him, he, he records this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation. I think what God is saying here is good. But sometimes when we're under that umbrella, it's gonna be a little bit of a waiting game. In the moment of your distress, it's gonna feel excruciatingly long, but God says, I am faithful. Just trust me through this. Trust me. And as we close and we think about this trust and what God has called us to do and remember him, last week we, we celebrated Easter and the resurrection of Christ. Right after that in John, he talks about who, all the people he appeared to. He appeared to the apostles, he appeared in the room, he just kind of like showed up in there with the door locked. But there was one person who wasn't there. That's Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. His disciples were all excited and they tell Thomas about it and Thomas says... Hopefully you'll recall this. He says, unless I put my finger in his wounds, put my hand in his side, I'm not gonna believe. Thomas said, I've, I've, gotta have, I've gotta have this in the flesh. I gotta see this. John chapter 20 says, eight days later. Today marks eight days after we celebrated Easter. So eight days later, Jesus appears to him and he says, Thomas, see my hands. Put your finger in them. Thomas, see my side. Put your hand in it. And Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. He sees Jesus for who he is. And Jesus responds, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I don't know if Jesus is gonna come in the room right now and say, look at my hands. But he says we're blessed for those who believe have not seen him.
Horatio Spafford saw Jesus. He saw Jesus in the midst of his struggle and his pain and his anguish of losing his daughters. So much so, he wrote this great verse. I love this. My sin, oh, the bliss of the but in whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So my question for you, is it well with your soul? In the midst of your trouble and your, and your, and your distress, it's okay to cry out to God. It's okay to, to, to mourn. But are you crying out to God with an open hand or are you crying out to God with a fist? Just consider that as we go to the Lord's table. As Jesus said, I have come that you have life, you may have it more abundantly. And we do that by remembering him at this table. If you're struggling with Christ and you're struggling with it's not well with my soul, I'm gonna ask you not to participate in communion today. For we believe that this table is for those who know Christ and know that he has bared their sin. He's nailed it to the cross for them and we bear it no more. Scriptures tell us on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is, my, this is my body which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and after he blessed it, he said, take and drink. For this is the blood for the remission of sins, for sins of the whole world. And as often as you, as you take this, you do this in remembrance of me and declare that I am God and Lord until I return again. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the difficult times because in them you show us of how small we are and how big you are. Father, we don't like those times. I confess I don't like them. I want all the good times. I want the mountaintop times. But Father, we know we live in a world with sin and some of that comes from us. Father, help us to understand our life for us. Not that we eat a little wafer and drink a little juice. We say, but in that representation of associating with your death, burial, and resurrection, we say, because of you and what you've done, it is well with my soul. Christ, that's all. We pray all this in your name. Amen. As the team plays, as the Lord leads you, Associate with Christ. Do this in remembrance of Him. Take that little wafer and consider exactly what He did for you. And that juice representing His blood. His faithfulness to go to the cross for you. Greater sin, a greater friend is no one that won't somebody would lay their life down for his friends. Jesus paid it all for us. His name we pray and worship.